on this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I are, well, not really Rufus because he's not part of the interview, but we're joined by Pablo Torre, a legit uh, sports journalist and a member of the Tony Kornheiser family. We talk a little bit about our own sort of macro opinions of sports and what it should mean to be in a sports betting hall of fame, which is really apropos with bet bash coming up. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. Podcast where Rufus is at the Yale Club flexing his Ivy League muscles, so to speak. Is Yale still an Ivy League school, or is it is it accredited still? Four years accredited? Uh, I, I think so. I think maybe it's being reevaluated, but I think for now it's still accredited. Nice. Uh, how was Cabot in the Peabody? What is it called? The what? The Peabody Cup. The Peabody Cup. Do you guys Cabot. have a cup that people win? Is it like an athletic supporter that people drink out of? No. There is there is a trophy. It's pretty big. It's engraved. The winner has to engrave it each year with how much they won by. Although the first year I got it for Tom because he won and I had it engraved, but he actually didn't engrave it last year. So hopefully he will at some point. But You mean the loser? The loser does the engraving for the winner. No, the winner has to get engraved because they have the trophy. The winner oh, keeps the just, trophy. That for just the sounds like work, dude. I don't. Well, I wouldn't of. want to win because I'm just would be too lazy to actually engrave that shit. That's true. You know, I'm a lazy human, so. I mean, that's how it works in like fantasy football leagues too, though. Generally, it's not Speaking like the loser has to get the trophy engraved. Nice segue. Speaking of football, have you been looking at any football yet? Not yet. None. I'm yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should maybe we should have Bud on next week. We're gonna have, we're gonna start doing some football stuff. Probably have Bud Elliott on relatively soon. Even though he started a a sports betting service, right? Isn't he? Isn't he gone tout? Ian Barry Horse. I, I saw the announcement. I I don't know much about it though. Maybe we'll let him talk about it and defend himself. So you you says. asked me you asked me how Cabot was and then didn't let me answer. It's uh, pretty much on brand for me. So uh-huh. there we go. How was Cabot? Oh, it was fantastic. It really is golf heaven. We're we're making it we're making it an annual trip. I th- we this was the second one, but we're definitely going to do it every year. It's just it's such a beautiful place, and I mean the golf's fantastic. I, I don't, I, there, I couldn't be more positive about it. You were whining like a little baby though about how tired and sore and whatnot you were, and how you were too oh, yeah. old for this. Even though, you, how old are you? 38, something like that? 37? 37. 37. I'm 50, and I, I'm a man, and I walked, 10 years a man, <laughs> and I walked, uh, I walked, what, 36, I walked 90 holes in two and a half days, so. Nice. We did, in three days, we did 110 holes, because the, there's the short course, which is 10 holes. We did, we did that twice. We had five regular rounds. 
I did have a caddy the whole time though. So I, we, I we agree. I agree. I agree that that probably causes. Um, I'll tell you one stressful. reason we don't have a caddy is that I personally like green reading and stuff like that to be part of the competition. And Tom kind of agrees that that's fair. Yeah. It's I mean, like having a yard. It's it's the whole John Rom argument with, with the green books. Well, I mean, I don't, I think if everyone has that same advantage, it's just a matter of, you know, like um, my son and I play Uno these days. And I don't know if you've played Uno recently, but there are these wild cards that are blank and you are literally supposed to be able to like pick the rule or whatever. And my son is explaining to me, he's six years old, that you get to pick any rule you want, except for you automatically win or automatically lose any of the rule. So he was making me pick up 40 cards at one point. And I'm like, James, there's no way. And it turns out, I looked it up. What you're supposed to do is write on pencil the rule that of each card, mutually agree upon the rule before Beforehand. the game starts, which all makes sense. And so I would never agree to pick up 40 cards because I got I got a job. I got things to do. I can't just sit around playing Uno with my son. So uh, are you looking forward to Bet Bash? Yeah, it's going to be fun. When are you heading out there? Tom and I fly out Saturday evening. Oh, you're no, going to be around Sunday. Sunday, Sunday evening. Sorry. You're gonna... Sunday oh. evening. So my grandma's 100th birthday party is in the D.C. area on Saturday. So we'll be there for that. I'm going to... Do you get in Sunday night? Do you get in Sunday evening? Yeah. I'll be there Sunday night. Nice. What for? I have two events on Monday and Tuesday that I'm speaking at in Vegas. Ah. And then I'm probably going to head back Tuesday night. Okay. Maybe we'll play golf on Monday or something. Oh, no, you can't because you're speaking. And I didn't bring my golf clubs because... It's too hot. Yeah, and it just didn't make sense to schlep them around so much for a potential of maybe one round of golf if I have time for it. Well, we can go out Sunday night because there's a plan to go out Sunday night. But if any of you listeners are coming to Bet Bash early... And want to hang out with Rufus on with uh, with Rufus and Tom and I on Sunday or Monday nights. We'll be in town. So, there's well. that. Uh, are you guys both staying at your apartment? I am. I think Tom's going to stay in a hotel. What are you most excited about for Bet Bash? That's and Spanky, question. we're doing this all free for you. We're promoting Bet Bash, so don't say we don't ever do anything for you. Um, you know, I'm excited to see Taylor. That, yep. that'll be nice telemachus um, you mean telemachus yeah, yeah see i nailed it telemachus you did uh, i'm so that'll be nice and and i mean i think the thing i'm most excited about is seeing people that i haven't seen in a while that i people that i like nice um who are you most excited to see besides telemachus let's see i mean the usual suspects you know like matt metcalf roxy um Plenty of others. How do you feel about Captain Jack calling you the best sports better in the world alive or whatever he called? Oh, you? I mean, I think you and I both know that's not the case. It was very nice of him to say, but. But he stood by it because the the sports betting pod review or whatever it's called, betting pod review, uh, took him to task on it and he doubled down on it. See what I did using a blackjack reference there? Yeah, I mean, that's nice of him to say and. I appreciate his support, but who do you think the best sports better in the world is? If it's not you, I have no idea, Jeff. 
Do you think do you it's think, you? Do you think we know? No, I don't think we know. I think it's impossible to know. And it's, it's unknowable. It, how, do, how do you define how do you define best? It sounds like a berry horse kind of conversation. It's unknowable. How does one define Maybe if best? the quantum mechanics of the world were more different, we would know it. No, no, that's a good point. Is um, best like if the best is the is the best the most money won is the best the greatest ROI percentage? I mean, shouldn't is, shouldn't the, the know, best all sorts of different? No, but know. shouldn't shouldn't the best be? Um, from our brand, the best process. I mean, the the sports better that has the best process, not necessarily well, the, the best has. results, not necessarily. No, no, no. I'm, well, I'm there's also honest. opportunities. That's a big part of it too. Opportunities, because like that, I, that, I would say in general, you... the best. A lot of. I mean, I think there becomes a blurry line between betting and booking too. I mean, I think you look at a lot of the sort of sharp syndicates, you know, and they end up market making and stuff like that on exchanges and and being, and then because that's a way to, to, to get to bet more basically. Right. Yeah. Well, so I don't, I don't actually think this is, we were starting in sort of like ridiculous, dumb banter, but I actually think this is kind of an interesting question, which is, especially in light of Spanky creating this, you know, black, you know, sports betting hall of fame and Billy Walters being inducted and all this kind of stuff. And, and again, like, I think it'll be an amazing event. Um, I'm, I know lots of people that are going, but the, the idea of what defines the best sports better ever, or what should the criteria even be for a sports betting hall of fame? Um, I mean, what, what, what do you think? Like process driven. So like, let's just take our own point of view, right? Like if you were starting a sports betting hall of fame, who would the people you would put in be, who would the first three people you induct be? I think we kind of had this conversation. No, but you don't, but Rufus, you don't have to, you get to decide because it's your sports betting hall of fame. You can decide whatever criteria you want for this. I would think it would be people that have pushed sports betting forward. Okay. That have made a positive impact on, on the sport. No, a positive impact on the industry. Okay. I think that's so a big who, part of it. Who would the who would the three people be then? I mean, I think, I think Roxy for sure. Okay. I think. I don't think anyone would disagree with you there. Richard shoots. I put him in. Okay. Um, you know, I feel like Billy Walters definitely makes sense. Um, he's been very very successful and i think you definitely want the the legends in there i don't know but i mean i feel like i'm blanking there's a lot of but i don't i don't know that i'm blanking on clearly but i don't i don't know if what you're saying the the people that you named are necessarily ones that push the industry forward right i think I mean, I mean, Roxy for sure, right? Roxy kind of was at the core. Was he was he the founder of LVSC or was yeah, he- yeah, and he kind of was the guy that started com- okay, using so Roxy, to Roxy, Rock, right? Roxy was the one that made, uh, like the sophistication, the early sophistication of sports, of, of the bookmaking or yeah. of the of the of the uh, on that counter side. And he wore a suit to work. He he treated this like a regular company. It, it, he kind of he wears a suit everywhere. Right, I know, suits. but he does. But he kind of professionalized he looks good. odds making in a way that it had not been before. Okay, 
then but, you could say you could say Billy Walters was the first person to employ like computers and like analytics at scale to amass a fortune in sports betting. Is that fair? Or yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Haralabov has got to be pretty far, pretty close to being in a Hall of Fame for sports betting because he amassed a fortune and has done quite a bit of crossover in other industries. And um, he'd be in my sports betting Hall of Fame personally. I think he's too young for that. I think Why? the initial, you... I think the initial sports betting Hall of Fame needs to be people that are, I mean, what's like the requirement of having retired you know, a certain number of years, yeah, but, but, ago, years ago, but, like, like, you know, it's the NFL hall of fame, right? Like yeah, they had to wait to induct Phil Parcells until he retired from coaching, et cetera. But her album I mean, I think, retired and let, let, I know, let me, I know, let me, but, but I, what I would do is I would start with the old school people that, that had the sort of greatest impact for further back. And then the second year I would, could get into sort of more contemporary people. Okay. So the reason that I think her Alibaba is important as we think about this first sports betting hall of fame is because ultimately I think having people who've represented the different eras of sports betting and, you know, did, as you say, move things forward where I think again, like Haralabob moved things forward with the operation he built and the people he had working with him. And even the people that were born, see what I did there out of that organization. Um, you, you can get that subtle joke. Yeah. I think the hardest thing with having a sports betting hall of fame in terms of inducting like betters is just the fact that betters largely are anonymous. There's no record. There's no official record. Like there are for athletes in sports, you know, we can look and see how many hits Pete Rose had and things like that, but we can't, we don't see every, every bet somebody placed. We don't actually know their success. We know it by reputation, I mean, like I have a reputation of being a successful golf better, but if I had a really bad year, you know, if I didn't say anything, nobody really knows. And so in a way, I think we, we would talk about coast, it on the podcast, right? So. but you can coast like it's reputation. There's no actual, there's no physical record of it. Um, aside from the fact that people have made lots of money. Well, again, that's why I think it, it's funny because you sort of started with this concept, which I really agreed with, and you really haven't continued on with it, which is like, who are the people that have represented moving the industry forward and, and, you know, different ways like David Dow is interesting because he wrote a really him and Edward wrote a really good book. And he's now been on both sides of the, you know, the equation. And he's now trying to really push the idea of in-game way. Like it's a, he's those types of people to me, are the people that I'm most, I'm not necessarily most interested in the most successful better or the people that have like largely languished in uh, anonymity to continue to preserve their edge. Not that that I don't think that they're important and they're probably amazing at their craft, but if I'm having this hall of fame, part of it is around notoriety, right? Yeah. And I think the problem is the people that are most well-known are not the betters as much as they are the bookmakers and industry people. And I think that was, I mean, I think there is a gambling hall of fame that, you know, Chris Christie got inducted into because he helped. There you go. I mean, exactly. So he so, pushed right. But, 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 and I think Spanky wants this to be one for like, for 
more the people that actually um not the figureheads but people that actually did things betting as well but is, you think chris christie is a figurehead um largely i mean he was the governor of new jersey and he brought the case against the united states i don't, I, I i mean i don't I think that there is probably someone in Chris Christie's, um, you know, cabinet or in his like organization that probably deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think I mean it was. It I might not be Chris Christie himself, but in front of the Supreme Court. How about what, uh, what what was Ted Ted Ted? Uh, who was the Ted name Lasso. of the guy? No, the guy that I was on the the uh, the former Solicitor General Ted Olson. Yeah, Ted Olson was that his name? I don't know. You don't remember when I had did the panel? He was the guy that argued for New Jersey. He's oh, a yeah, yeah. solicitor. I mean, this Isn't is a long time ago. It's not that long ago. I mean, it's I think it was Ted Olson. Let's look at I'm up. I'm name blind. Yeah, Ted Ted Olson. Um okay, so uh yeah, anyways, okay. Well, there was something else I wanted to so ask about with on, would, would you say like so would you put Lefty Rosenthal in the Hall of Fame? I don't know who that is. You seen the so movie no. Casino? Uh, I have seen the movie Casino, but uh, the yeah. people, Joe Pesci is that the Joe Pesci character? No, it's a Robert De Niro character. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't. It's oh, the person I was going to ask you about, and this is a controversial one. Chad Millman. Would he be, he be in the sports betting Hall of Fame? He's had a pretty Look, big impact on sports betting. Just he in terms like, of writing, he was and covering it. I mean, he wrote The Odds, which was a very, you know, important early book on sports betting. He was the guy at ESPN that was pushing to get sports betting content into the mainstream, right? Right. He was I mean, responsible for you and I being on but, television, but which is probably a net negative. Alan, the well, Alan Boston, the odd, well, the odds was about Alan Boston. And I think Alan Boston, not just about Alan Boston, right? It was about Snitchy right. and it was about, like the the stardust the have you read the odds but alan boston was Rufus, the have you read the odds i don't believe i have okay so probably don't comment on a book you have okay read, but but i've i i have talked to alan boston i know that he kind of introduced chad to this topic and taught him the ways of you know taught him the industry yeah i mean i think we all have our debates about actions content and that kind of thing we've we've covered that on here but um i do think like you got to give chad some credit for being and, and maybe you think like oh the coverage isn't positive so maybe it wasn't net good for the industry but like he definitely pushed it at the the worldwide leader that was you know covering sports content and legitimized sports betting content at some level that's fair but what what impact did that have do you think I mean, you had, I, I remember reading Norman Chad. I mean, I don't think you and I would have a podcast if it wasn't for Chad. That, that well, that's, that's definitely true because yeah. we wouldn't have worked at ESPN and we wouldn't, you know, and we wouldn't have been frustrated with how sports betting was covered. Right. We might've still been, but like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I guess like for me, I probably, you know, when I think back on the the interesting things that have happened in sports betting i do i do think you have to give some credit to chad that's fair so anyone else cheetah just kidding nobody else no one else kenny white 
I don't know. I mean, the thing is, I think there are a lot of deserving people that are older and and we're in this industry, have been in this industry for a long time, and I would prioritize them. Dr. Bob? I mean, I again, like these are people that we've taken a task on this podcast, but Dr. If- Bob has had a legitimate impact on this industry. He's like, you know, was writing those long ass things, using analytics, selling picks, like, you know, in some whoever Ed, the dude from Raz, like, I mean, anyways, hopefully all these people will be at Bet Bash and you guys all get to meet them. Yeah, I think it's, I I do think the inducting betters thing is difficult. It's because it's hard. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, I guess you're right. Like in a way it's easier to evaluate touts. Well, and I'm not, in, in this case, I'm not evaluating people for their merit as much as I am for their impact on the industry, which is ultimately for sure. Shouldn't for it, I mean, it, it can be, but like, so you're saying like someone that produces content or isn't, in, if the content hasn't been great content, then, then maybe they shouldn't be in the hall of fame. It's like if they got I high, mean, high usage they got numbers, lucky, right? right? I mean, there's people that there's a people that have an outsized impact, like have accidentally had a big impact, I guess. Right. Process um, versus outcome here. Like Don Larson threw a perfect game in the world series in whatever year it was fifties or sixties. And he had a kind of mediocre career aside from that. Right. Should he, he's not in the hall of fame. Yeah. But again, that's not the same. It's not the same, right? This is like, you're, you're saying like, we're not saying that these people were flashing the pans. We, they, no. you know, I mean, again, if you were to evaluate Chad, re, like wrote the odds, you know, pushed gambling content into ESPN and then was a formative person in the action network, which you can say what you want about it, but it has a really had a really big impact on the industry. Yeah. I just think it's hard to think for me, at least to understand what makes somebody a hall of famer when you don't have objective criteria or even subjective criteria. Whereas like in baseball or a sport where things happen on the field, you have a, a, a way of evaluating somebody and, and how good they were and how they stack up to everybody else. I, I would be interested to see what kind of criteria other industries use, like, you know, the rock and roll hall of fame, things like that. You know, is it record sales? I mean, again, you still have metrics, you still have things. And so I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's, it's, I think it's tough. Okay. What I'm else glad I'm want? not the one in charge of it, but right, I think, well, but I, th- I think what you do is you have people in the industry vote and that's, and is he having, people, it. what's his, what's yeah, his process? I believe so. You know? I, well, I believe it's the, the luminaries are, are going to be voting for stuff in subsequent years or something like that. How does one become a luminary? Gets in the hall of fame. I don't know. <laughs> Right. It's a very self-fulfilling prophecy. Huh? It's a very self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. But I think everybody's got a different idea of just like I mean, that's the case actually for the baseball hall of fame, too. There's you know, Barry Bonds is not in the hall of fame. Right. Uh, how was your golf last week? Your golf betting. Oh, I thought you were gonna say, like, how did I play? So I I played, I was gonna say I played pretty well. I had one really bad round, but my last three 
I didn't well, ask, actually didn't actually ask. I know, but I'm 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 being like a politician and deflecting. We we made we had a good we had a good bounce back week, but my last three rounds were in the low 80s, so that was nice. Low 80s, that's good. That, that we, means your handicap is coming down. That means you and I can start playing again soon. Yay! It would be fun to play. It would be fun for me, you, and Tom to play in Vegas. That would be a lot of fun to go out early in the morning on Friday on Monday. Maybe we could do that. We could think about it. We should think about it. Uh, anything else before we bring in? We're gonna have Pablo Torre on this week. Rufus is unfortunately not going to be part of the interview. Uh, we can't really give train. any picks because this is going to be airing Thursday anyways. So like getting, giving golf picks would be like the Sepp Straka pick, right? I, I am upset that I'm not going to be able to be on this interview, but I am taking a train down to my grandma's 100th birthday. Oh, that's very special. and very. It nice. is. She's quite an she's accomplishment. Spry still? She's pretty spry. I mean, she's like physically in great health. That's great. Good for her. Yeah. Good Peabody jeans. She's a Dolvin, actually. Oh, got it. Yeah. Um, anything else before we jump into this? And we don't need to do a second half of this because we don't have any picks to do. And do you have any, did you have a tilted moment of the week? Let's see. I actually did have a good tilted moment, but I forget what it was now. I remember definitely- at the time thinking about God, this is a great tilted moment, and I didn't even write it down. I mean, it's definitely golf related, I think. Uh I mean, I'll put it this way. I had two matches, my the the two matches the last day Tom and I were playing at Cabot. So Saturday, we're both all square through 16 holes, and he goes and birdies 17 on both. So on 17 at our second one at the cliffs, like it's a drivable par four, but you have to drive it over the ocean and it's very blind. Like you can run it down. And we we both were in the front bunker. He had a bunker shot to 15 feet i hit it to seven feet he puts first um he drains it and i and i had said like you know i think there's an advantage putting first there for sure and he drains his i miss mine and that was that and and on the first round that day on the links course we had we were tied going into 16 i had um a i hit the green i had a really nice approach shot to like six or seven feet he misses the green right and has like 30 yards he actually puts it puts it to like 30 feet he drains his 30 footer for par i missed my seven footer for birdie and so you know that that was and then and then when he stuck his tee shot on the part three to um to 10 feet or so and made that putt like it was that was a, a little bit tilting because i i was in i i i had the upper hand most of that match yeah. Uh, how about uh, betting world women's world cup soccer? Have you been watching any of that? The women's world cup soccer? I watched a little bit in the bar after golfing. You saw the, you saw the Brazil, I saw Australia against Brazil Nigeria, got Nigeria, I believe right? Australia against Nigeria. I didn't know who was the favorite, but I think Nigeria won that one. Australia was the favorite in that game. That's it's what it's actually been, I, I find the women's it's been pretty enjoyable to watch. I've, I've, you know, watched some in the middle of the night when I've been like, you know, whatever, not able to sleep or something. It's been, it's been pretty fascinating. I was impressed with the quality of the soccer for sure. I mean, yeah. Okay. Let's welcome in um, Pablo Torre and Rufus will, and I will talk to you again next week. 
We now welcome in Pablo Torre to the Bet the Process podcast. This is a very exciting moment. There's two Asian American males talking about sports on a uh, podcast that about seven people listen to. So that's exciting. Uh, Pablo, welcome to the Bet the Process podcast. There needs to be a term like the Bechdel test is what they call it when two women are talking in a movie about something that's not related to men. There should be a term for when two Asians are talking to each other about sports. Um, I, I believe that we are making history, Jeff Ma. Um, we're, we're continuing a, a, a lineage that uh, I consider you unironically to be an important figure in. Yeah, we, you know, there, there's a, there was a moment in time where you and I felt like we were at the top of the world. We were, had just been let not what they call cut right um, by ESPN, meaning we had been in um, Vegas the entire week covering the Pacquiao Mayweather fight. Yes. You were obviously uh, with the Pacquiao family and contingent and ESPN told us they no longer needed us uh, for sports center specifically that night. And we kind of went out and, and did the town Oh, how the mighty have fallen um, <laughs> so far. I just remember being unable to keep up with you, which was in, which was embarrassing on 50 different levels. Um, one of which is because I'm ostensibly like younger and a guy who goes out. Secondly, I'm ostensibly a guy who had just been hanging out with a boxer's camp which means that I should have had my immunities built up, my resilience built up. But then I experienced Las Vegas and the secret corridors of Las Vegas through Jeff Ma. And I realized I am out of my depth in ways that are profoundly embarrassing. Yeah, that was the sneaky Chinese buffet night. And we kind of Dude. rallied. I remember we we actually head out. Do you remember meeting up with uh, what what's what's his name? The guy from Max? Uh, Fresh Off? No, Fresh Off the Boat. Oh, the, the age is Eddie Wong. Is that his name? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Eddie yeah, Wong. yeah. yeah. yeah we <laughs> met up with him. That was it was it was all very exciting. And fresh off the boat had just come out. So he was he was really uh, he was really important. So, so what was that like covering Pacquiao? Was that I imagine that's got to be one of the highlights of your of your career so far. There is nothing like covering boxing when you're a magazine writer because you get full access to people who don't give a fuck. What's a magazine? Yeah, a magazine is a collection of pages that used to exist from the 1800s to 2015. And uh, inside of that, this magazine used to enable uh, punks like me to be on an expense account embedded with a boxer. And these boxers would give you access because boxers are wired to sell their fights. They're, they're wired to be interesting as well as just like naturally reckless in all of the ways you'd imagine. And so for me, Manny Pacquiao being um, the one boxer in the world who was both the number one boxer in the world, but also the only boxer whose entourage I could plausibly blend into was an incredible experience. Like I would be flying around the country with them from like press conference to press conference. I remember I was being, uh, I was on the fringes of a pickup basketball game with Manny, which was like playing hockey against Vladimir Putin, where it's like everybody gets out of the way. He's about to score 900 points. Great. But more than that, it was like just being in the inner sanctum of like a boxer, like partying in his hotel room. And I just have stories of like, 
all of that shit, man. It was still a highlight. And meeting you in the course of that um, for a distinctly Asian American weekend, um, I probably tell the story of you showing me the high roller secret Chinese buffet as often as I tell Manny Pacquiao stories. And that's not a joke. <laughs> did you, uh, did that contingent when you were with them, did they, they obviously believe that he could win, I would guess, right? And did you feel like that, like he could win at that moment? Or, and so was, when the outcome, were you surprised or how do you look at that? I was bummed. I did the thing that all sports fans do, and I should now cop to the idea that I was rooting for him. I was violating my journalistic principles by rooting for the guy I was covering in that sort of the fight. Um, I did one half. Tim Kewen did the Mayweather half. I was rooting for my half um, and my genetics. Um, I did the thing that we all do, which is like, oh, he's hurt. You know, there was all that talk about his shoulder getting messed up. I was like, it, it was dispiriting. That fight was this giant culmination. And he was outclassed um, in literal and figurative ways by Floyd Mayweather. And so I, I was surprised that it was so not interesting, the fight itself. Yeah. I mean, I think that became known as Floyd's MO, right? Which is that he's just so good technically that he's just not going to lose and his flights are boring. What do you, I mean, on a macro level, I mean, obviously someone that that grew up covering boxing and thinking about it, where do you think that sport is going? And, you know, there's, there was like moments of rebirth recently. Um, is it, is it on the up or what, what do you think? I think it's on the up insofar as what it takes to sustain yourself as a profitable enterprise in which the people at the top can make lots of money is not the scale of the NFL. I mean, this is sort of the lesson of media writ large is that as long as you have an audience that will pay money, it does not need to be billions upon billions of people paying. It just needs to be enough. And I think there's a culture around boxing that is strong enough. And I think there are fighters that even though in terms of like curating broad name recognition, like how many people know Terrence Crawford or Errol Spence? I don't know. But I think there's enough of a draw there for these fights to be money makers. And so boxing has been declared dead, I think, every year since I've been alive. And I just think the future of it living is just going to be modest compared to certainly the leagues, but very much alive. I'm bullish insofar as them being able to move content, so to speak. Why do you think that the name recognition isn't there with those guys compared to like the Thomas Hearns or the Marvin Hagler's or the Sugar Ray Leonard? It's like, you know, like, you would say that for a time that only heavyweights were relevant, but when I was growing up, certainly a lot of those other, like I was a yeah, huge fan of like Alexis Arguello. I remember him being like the guy that I really liked um, and thought was like this, you know, I'd watched one fight with them. I mean, what's the reason that we can't get those other welterweights or middleweights to stick? Yeah. I think there is, in fairness to like Duran and Tommy Hearns and all these guys you're mentioning, right? Marvin Hagler. Um, there isn't that level of generational talent all at the same time right now. I think that seems fair to say, even to me as like a relative boxing amateur compared to the diehards who really know it. I would say that seems fair to say. But beyond that, I think, yeah, like historically, like it reminds me of how people always assume that, um, only like like big men can't sell sneakers, right? Like there are these sort of 
inherited things like big men in the NBA can't sell sneakers and only heavyweights, only big men can sell fights in boxing. It's like the inverse. And I don't know if that's really true, but that's been a sort of uh, truism in boxing. And I think it really affects the mainstream assumptions about what people are interested in. You know, it's funny, like I think about boxing more and more like I think about some women's sports. And I say that because you don't need to be this titan outdrawing the men to be viable. You just need to be viable enough. And do you have a passionate fan base? And will you, and this is the key part, will you then get attention and coverage from media partners as if you matter? And I think boxing has been suffering from curating and name recognition in part of that chicken and the egg dynamic. Like, I think Terrence Crawford should be more famous. I don't I don't know if Bud Crawford is a name that um, people know, but they should. And my hope is that now they will. But I also think there's a presumption of like, we're programming the A block of today's show. Do people really, do people really care about boxing right now? And they're going to assume no, even if with a little bit of watering on this flower, it might be able to bloom some more. So let's let's segue into that because you're doing PTI this week with our favorite uncle uh tony kornheiser i think if he were to have two adopted um asian kids it'd be you and i no doubt um, uh, but you know how does that process go because it's interesting and i'll give you a lens to how i think about this like the pinnacle of your profession right is probably stephen a smith right like he is this guy that just produces but he has these gaffes all the time that people not all the time but enough that people make a big point. And I would argue that people that are in the business know that the reason that is, is because he's trying to do so many different things and be across so many different things. It's hard to be across those things and not make a mistake. How do you prepare for doing PTI, which is such a variety of, of subjects? Um, and, and, you know, it's obviously somewhat recorded, but you have to be on your toes with everything you say, right? Yeah, no, it's a fully live to tape show. Like we never go back and edit. It's always done in one rip and there needs to be some technological disaster for us to stop down and like stop it. Um, I think Tony and Stephen A are really fascinating figures atop this industry because Stephen A, as you described, is everywhere all the time. He is everywhere. He is everything everywhere all at once. Stephen A. Smith in sports media. And Yes, it leads to him being tired and him overextending. Sure, all of that's fine. Tony Kornheiser loves the particular niche that he has. He's explained it to me this way. He does not make as much money as Stephen A. Smith, but he makes more money than anybody else at ESPN on a per minute basis. And I think if you were to dose out PTI, like, okay, you're doing 23 minutes every weekday and he's done. He likes that lifestyle more because it keeps him focused and narrowly tailored, as you were alluding to. And he's not trying to be everywhere and all things to all people. And PTI is a show, by the way, that's built around his sensibilities. When I host it with him, I also have input on the rundown. I'll also get to veto stuff, but really I'm following his lead. I mean, what he's doing is, as per his want, like he wants to be a mile wide, even if it means only being an inch deep sometimes. He wants to lightly touch all topics because he wants to be, he's a newspaper guy. He's a generalist. He wants to be a generalist when it comes to sports talk. And by the way, that's something that I also take. And I think that narrow focused 
um, varying depth is an easier and more productive way than going deep all the time, trying to be everything to everyone. Um, but my prep in that way is, is, is familiar. I've been doing it for, you know, 10 years now at ESPN on around the horn and other shows, which is, I need to watch the stuff. I need to read. I have people that I rely on. I have, uh, my internal RSS reader is full of journalists and experts and people in my phone that I will unabashedly call up to ask questions of so I can be smarter and I will cite them. Um, and I will then also like evolve their takes to make sense to me. So yeah, man, it's second nature now. I'm just like constantly inhaling. Well, so it's interesting work. because it's, if I were to compare that to the process of a, of a sports better, right. Who is also trying to be voracious in the amount of information they get looking for any information, asymmetry edge or anything like that. I mean, what does your typical day look like when you, you know, like you have, let's just say you're not even going to be on PTI and you're just trying to stay abreast of everything that's going on because that's kind of your job, right? So what, what does that day look like? This is why a depressing percentage of sports writers are addicted to Twitter. I mean, Twitter is the portal. It's the RSS feed. So you mean for X, me, X, X, sorry, we're, X, we're addicted to X, X which X, is a different, yeah. it's, 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 that's yeah. great to say we're addicted to X. I know I'm on X all the time, man. Yeah. I'm sweaty. Yeah. I'm hugging people. I have a come down the next day. It's all very, very, um, very, very troublesome. Um, so yeah, like I am inhaling sports news all of the time, but today, for instance, we're talking today. And later today, I will go do PTI. And so I'm living this. I woke up early this morning. I was like, what are the topics? I look at our Google Doc. Our producers have a Google Doc in which they put clips of articles, um, but also just like potential stories. And then I'm going and I'm looking them up myself and I'm texting people and I am asking questions and I am like relying on now my own 15 years in this industry to be like, okay. I don't want my take to be what everyone else is saying, but I also want it to be authentic to what I actually feel. And at that point, I am trying to triangulate. Like it's a, it's a, I'm not an advantage hot taker, right? Like that's a big difference between you and me. As an advantage, better an advantage. Um, a guy who's looking for an edge, you're looking to win. I'm looking to contribute something that some listener out there will retain and think is interesting. Like, I'm not trying to beat Tony Kornheiser, you know? I'm trying to provide a take that will spur an interesting conversation, but I never go in, and maybe this is my default and Stephen A does it way better than me on all sorts of levels, but I'm not trying to defeat the person. I don't see it so much as a debate as I see it as what's a good conversation to have about this topic in which you're going to listen and be like, I'm glad I heard that. Interesting. So, okay, let's let's take some news from the you know the the current landscape um some macro subjects and, and yeah be interested in your take uh women's world cup right now going on um i have shockingly watched more games um at this stage probably than i did of the men's and, and the reason that's shocking is because of the time right where i am it's in on in the middle of the night but i found like the france brazil game to be really compelling i find the amount of parody to be incredible. What is your take on the Women's World Cup, specifically the U.S.'s chances going forward and um, broadly speaking, who you think to be the favorite? 
Yeah, I think it's the U.S. until proven otherwise. I'm a jingoistic person in that way. I listened to Carly Lloyd criticize the team for celebrating, just making it out of the group stage by drawing the Netherlands. And I was like, um, yeah, or sorry, drawing Portugal in that 3 a.m. game after, yes, um, struggling. Well, they also drew Netherlands. Netherlands, Yeah, no, like one win, two draws, right? So like Carly Lloyd is angry that they're celebrating a group stage in which they had one win. And I'm like, that reminds me of Kobe Bryant. Like this is Mamba mentality shit. Like this is a person who has won everything, who is saying to everybody, the only way to achieve greatness is through suffering. And anything short of a championship should not be celebrated. And I find myself thinking about her and her credibility because I'm growing angry watching this team myself. And I'm like, why? I think the manager, Vlatko, I think that dude is skating insofar as he is not being blamed with the supermajority of the stuff. He should be like, I think Carly Lloyd is pointing out, Vlatko said in response to Carly Lloyd, how dare you? Like, I know these players, these women are all super competitive. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like they have more talent in their second line, in their depth chart than anyone else in the world. And usually when that happens in sports, we blame the coach. We blame the manager. And so I think Vladko, by being on the side of his players, is sort of trying to skate a little bit from his responsibility. I am totally uninspired by him, even if I recognize that the players themselves, of course, like, yeah, they lost their leading score before the thing started, right? Like, Jeff, this thing happens when, like, you're so dominant as an American team where you both get blamed but also credited for how good everyone else is. Like, it's the dream team, right? The dream team exported basketball across the world. Angola was taking photos with Michael Jordan. And now everyone got inspired to play basketball. And in this case, part of me is like, is this the problem with being so good? You sold the world women's soccer so effectively by being dominant in the United States that now people are catching up because they're like, I want to compete like that. I want to get those riches and that fame. Riches, of course, relatively speaking. So- I think it's a problem of their own devising. It's also a problem of managing. Interesting. I mean, I think the the macro that I'm hearing, you know, at least from like the people in, in Europe, is that the rest of the world has caught up, and it is, you know, this whole idea that um, the women in the U.S. were ahead because women were like encouraged to play sports in the United States a lot earlier sure. than in other places, and. Certainly in Europe, they've caught up. I mean, I think it's been interesting, the macro of the African teams doing well, you know, that that's been exciting. It's, it's, to me, it's been a very exciting, I, I mean, I love parody and I love upsets. And so that aspect of it has been incredibly interesting. Um, what do you, where would you place if you were now thinking about this, the, the sports landscape generally? Which sports are you do you are you bullish on? Which ones are you bearish on? You know, the the NBA um is doing all sorts of things to stay. We we did a podcast with Evan Wash where we talked a little bit about some of the innovations that they're doing and and whatnot. Um, the NFL obviously has their issues. Like where where are you on this landscape of things? Like which sports do you do you think are on the up and which are on the down? It feels like demand for the NFL is inelastic, which is terrifying, right? Like, yeah, you can be, I mean, and certainly like Dan Snyder being one data point, right? Run your organization into the ground in every way possible, legally, financially, ethically. 
and you will make $6.05 billion a record um, for that franchise. Granted, it's a legacy franchise. It's a famous franchise, but that to me is telling. Um, I was talking to John Skipper about this. John Skipper, now my boss at Metal Arc Media, formerly my boss at ESPN. And his view is that sports franchise valuations, and I'll take it economically at the top, sports franchise valuations are only going up still. And my question and my skepticism in that regard is only about who the buyers are. Like in terms of bullishness, bearishness, I'll tell you, I love the NBA as a fan. Um, I watch the NFL like everybody else. I watch more, certainly like MLS now because of Messi. I watch more women's soccer. I watch more women's college basketball than I ever have because of Caitlin Clark. But in terms of the broad strokes, I'm thinking about how are they monetizing these media rights deals, which are why players get paid X and why teams get valuated at Y. And my only concern, Jeff, is that the greatest business model in media history was ESPN. It was the idea that you're paying ESPN money for channels that you may never watch. And so as linear television is shrinking, right, you are then looking to other buyers like tech companies. And I think it's fascinating that Apple, despite having more money than anyone else on the planet, is taking a very, I think, um, risk-averse approach. They went to the MLS and said, we'll do a very proscribed deal in which there are escalators, performance bonuses, basically, based on subscriptions that will pay out. They did the same with Major League Baseball in its own proscribed way. Um, the Pac-12 deal they offered, reportedly, is very much laden with performance bonuses. Get subscribers, we'll give you more money, right? They're not just giving money over based on a business model that is, yeah, based on anything like linear cable television. And so to me, the question is just, I am curious when the tech companies will really start swinging their dicks around and start spending. Because so I, until I then, it's, yeah, it's a question mark. I think that's interesting from that you call that risk averse, because I, I think if you go and loop this back to how you were talking about boxing and, and the new ways that we can monetize smaller audiences, before, right, the 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 angle was, and and if anyone doesn't understand what pa- Pablo is alluding to, it's this idea that rights fees were largely supported by some grandma in Kansas who had no idea that she was paying whatever five dollars, ten dollars a month eight, for all the nine, ESPN, yeah. like, and and so that's why they were able to charge such or pay such large rights fees, and so. You know, the, the, the approach Apple is taking is the approach that a smart, sound company would take where, you know, they are, again, this is this whole idea of, you know, the, with the MLS deal, there's no like local restrictions or any, like they can just go and this is the idea. I'd rather make pennies from millions than, you know, hundreds from hundreds or whatever it is like it. And so, um, I do think it's interesting to think about some of the more niche sports. You know, do you think that soccer and specifically you talked a little bit about ownership, we're seeing, you know, with the 49ers buying into leads and and generally a lot of the different, um, you know, the Ryan Reynolds situation. Do you feel like soccer ownership, is that a bubble or if, you know, in Skipper's eyes, is that just the way things are going? Like these franchises just become more and more valuable. Yeah, I think it's a function of scarcity, right? Like there are only so many of these things and the presumed demand for them is increasing. And if those two presumptions are true, then I do think, yes, 
they should increase in value. But it does also feel like there's a trend. Um, and I don't know if it's a super rigorous economically um, trend, uh, but yeah, like Wrexham, like there's a, it's like the F1 thing. Like how much of this is positive press and buzz that rich people like, you know, are now paying attention to and want to get in on and how much of it is um, actually a sound investment. I'm, I, I'm bullish on, look, it's funny, right? The countervailing part of boxing is dead hearing that every year is hearing simultaneously every single year. Soccer is the sport of the future. We've been told that boxing is dying and soccer will take over America every year since I've been alive, basically. And I am watching Messi. I was in Miami last week watching Messi score. Didn't you two... miss his goal? I, I missed. Yeah, thank goal. you for yeah. bringing that yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. this is yeah. why yeah. I hate coming Too hungry and needed to go to the concession. I needed chicken. Ducks. I needed chicken fingers. I was in one of those fancy boxes. And I was like, truly, my thinking was, if I'm, and this is my own econometric analysis. I was like, look, all right. He's not going to score in the next 10 minutes. The first 10 minutes of this game, least likely time for Messi to score. And I was like, I'm going to get some chicken fingers. I came out. He scores in the first 10 minutes. Luckily, he scores again. And I watched that one. But then again, he scores in the first seven minutes in the game he just played. And so I'm clearly just a moron, right? But I, I so does that make me bullish about MLS, though? I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'm bullish on Messi. I don't know if this now, like, redounds the bottom line of MLS entirely because what happens when Messi is gone? Are they going to, what's, is that a sustainable plan? We'll get a Leo Messi. Like, I don't think so. Um, so for me, like, I assume that these things are going to increase in value. I also think it's funny, by the way, the Ryan Reynolds thing real quick. Like if I'm Ryan Reynolds, like I'm considering like at some point being the owner of a team means you're a villain. Like right now, so it's you the want him to thing. turn heel. You want him to turn heel. Oh, I don't want him to turn heel. I think he will inevitably turn heel. And I wonder if part of the honeymoon phase of like all of the stuff we're describing, positive press, whether that changes, right? Like, does is he now at a peak? Is now actually the perfect sell high moment for Ryan Reynolds? Right. That's the question I would be asking myself if I'm him with Wrexham. You're on a wave of positive press. It's awesome, but. Isn't it now a sell high moment? You know, if you want to maximize the money on this. When when you think about um, the the sort of like future again of of where sports are going um, in this country, like what are are there any sports that you believe like that are on on the up that have opportunities? Like, are there, you know, like on on the soccer thing? I think it's interesting because people that you know are bullish on MLS will tell you the big thing is now they're actually like willing to sell players. So they're actually like becoming more and more relevant because they're willing to do that. And there's better U S players now. And if we do, we have the world cup here. So that's a reason I guess, to be bullish on it. You're still skeptical though. I am. I So MLS needs to change some of its salary cap stuff, right? You got to be able to spend more. And there's a real distinction between owners who want to spend in MLS and owners who don't. And I think the owners who don't, I am I'm always assuming that owners want to spend less money um, when it comes to like just the distribution of 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 purse strings um, and how tight those are. Um, but I think I'm highly, highly bullish on soccer in America. I don't know if I'm bullish on the, on MLS, like for that reason. And just because 
Yeah, man. It's like how many of those guys can you get to come over who are going to be anything like Messi? Let's let's segue a little. We're we're a sports betting podcast, sports betting and analytics podcast. And from your perspective as someone that's been watching from afar, you know, obviously I know you well enough to know you're not really a better and not, you know, you're this isn't your domain expertise. I'm imagining between the last time you and I had this conversation and now you've become much more of a subject matter expert and had to have a point of view. What is your point of view on legalization so far? And really, what's your opinion of of the future? Like, do you, what's your take, I guess? I don't find the arguments for restricting sports betting to be persuasive. I think legalized sports gambling is philosophically, morally inevitable, which is different from being politically inevitable, right? Like California, it seems it would be, you tell me, Jeff, but like my working assumption is California is not racing to legalize sports betting, right? Like that you are, are you bearish on that? Let me ask you that as a clarifying question. Am I bearish on California? Well, so California is just a political mess, right? And that's why right. they're not racing to legalize because they couldn't get their shit together in the last bill to 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 create one where people were aligned. I mean, let, this is like a classic incentives problem, right? When people have different incentives, they can't work together for a common good, right? And the common good should be, let's create more money for everyone and we'll figure out how to split it afterwards versus what they did, right? Right. So for me, like there's a parallel certainly to like cannabis marijuana legalization where it's like maybe you have some ethical concerns, but the reality is that this is a source of real revenue that will be spent, by the way, provided by um, citizens making adult decisions about their own well-being. And I don't believe that the risks and harms of gambling addiction, although they are real, to be sufficiently persuasive enough for the state to step in and say, we will not let you do this. So that's my moral philosophical argument on behalf of sports betting. Um, I believe that sports betting as content is fascinating because it reminds me a bit of the fantasy football issue, right? In terms of like, how much are you gonna actually integrate this stuff into mainstream conversation? We talked about Stephen A. We talked about what goes viral in sports media, in sports conversation. It really isn't stuff that's driven by individual stakes on games. It's not fantasy content. It's not gambling content, even though those things are both growing massively in their own ways. The question is whether those silos of content designed to inform and educate and entertain people who are doing that stuff can actually become a substitute for the mainstream. And that's where I'm still feeling it out. Like, I don't, I don't see that. Um, I'm interested more than ever in it because I think sports betting and sports gambling as a function of analytics, as a function of trying to find edges is really interesting. But will it become like a first take topic? Like, that's where I'm, I'm, I'm bearish until proven otherwise in that way. I think I'm I'm pretty sure you're wrong about that because I think that there is going to be as this proliferates it's going to be really what matters and and I think ultimately like the, the, it's going to merge it's going to it's it, there's not going to be a like main take in a sports betting and it's all going to kind of merge at some point um I just I just I think that that's the reality 
Well, you, no, that's, you, that's interesting though, because I, I don't want to I don't want to say that I don't think it's going to happen. I just think what's going to need to change is the language of sports conversation is going to need to be like truly like more numerate, right? Like we're going to be talking. I mean, look, Jeff, that's a, that's that's macro though too, right? That's not just sports. That's just the world, right? It's becoming <laughs> like people are starting to become more numerate and more observant of their own biases and it's taking time. And that's why there's still opportunities in business and in sports to be numerate. No doubt. Like for me, like I I have become, it's funny, right. To talk to you, to come on your podcast, because outside of this podcast, I am the numerate one and I'm not especially numerate. I'm like somebody who appreciates and has written about the, the quote unquote data revolution in sports. But the reality is that like that revolution has long been settled. Like the nerds won right? Like data is everywhere. Like numbers are important. And so the question just becomes like, when do you recognize as a population that the people who do the most rigorous thinking about the outcome of games are not the gas bags. It's the people who are studying this stuff. It's Vegas. It's you. It's people who are rigorously applying data to answer questions because there's entertainment as we've discussed at length now, versus actual prediction. And prediction is the realm of gambling and fantasy. And that's where it needs to be, I think, blended in a more deliberate way. I think the main challenge of that is that ultimately data and analytics is not particularly as interesting as narratives, as that's stories, as, as creating you know, motivation angles and things that are somewhat debatable. A real analytics person, if you have them on a podcast, will say, I like this team because my model says yes, which is not (laughs) a very compelling. I'd rather give my money to that guy, though. Right. Like, that's the difference is that there's the brass tacks of prediction and then there is the theater of prediction. And those currently are not the same thing. Okay, I'm going to leave you with one last question because I'm interested in this. When you think about being a Harvard graduate, you know, son of. Um, you know, doctors and well-learned and educated people, how do they feel about your plight in life right now? Where, no, and, and I'm being honest because I, I feel like I, if, you know, my, my parents are, my mom's passed and my dad is is not not really with it anymore enough to have a conversation about this. But like, what is what is your, like, what, what how do they feel about where you've come from and where you, they- where you are right now? No, of course, I understand why you asked the question. It's a real question. Um, I only recently convinced them that I'm not going to medical school. (laughs) Like it took a long time on television for them to realize I'm not going to go to medical school or law school. That does not stop them from reminding me that I can write a book, that I can do something that feels academic and, and professional in ways that they're familiar with, right? they still have hope that I will go and do one of those things. And that's one version of the voice inside my head is that go do something serious with your life. Um, Because what I'm doing now is, I believe, has the ability to scratch those itches, but does not come in the packaging of something that an immigrant parent from the Philippines is going to intuitively understand. So I love that they've gotten to a point where they get what I do, but Jeff, I'm going to be 38 in September and still telling my mom, trust me, this is a real job. I can pay for my daughter's, my three-year-old's tuition with this. Please believe that Tony Kornheiser and Dan Levitard are people who you can entrust our family name with. 
And that is a terrifying proposition. Well, Pablo, on that note, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, thanks for making the time. And we'll have to get on again because I want to hear all about the new the new gig and what's going on there. Um, yes. We'll, we'll talk about that soon. www.pablo.show. Please sign up. It's free. That's the only bit of promotion I'll do here. And I'm going to demand that Jeff comes on my show when it launches because I have stories about my days with Jeff that need to be followed up on. I'm 100% in. Thanks. Thanks, dude. Peabody rankings, crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down, it seems like they don't get it. Puppet teaser, but the engine's running off a of leaded. None of it's organic, it all sounds synthetic. That's why I fucks with Jeff Ma and his dog Rufus. No locks of the year, they just tell you what their truth is. Maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies get thinner. Give the information turn and losing betters into winners. Yeah. Sam Hahn, Rappin' Ruckers, Jeff Ma, Rufus Peabody, crunching all the numbers, Massey Peabody rankings, we're looking for the edge, analytically driven, crunching all the numbers.